All right, here we are back in Matthew's gospel and the other gospels as well, because today we're going to be looking at the Roman trials of Jesus, the second major phase of the trials. I mentioned last time there were really six phases of trials Jesus was rushed through within about 10 or 12 hours. And three of those were Jewish and three of those were under the imperial um, standard. So uh, last time we looked at the just absolutely shameless way Jesus was treated in the Jewish trials and was convicted of blasphemy by a, a dozen illegal acts committed by Caiaphas, the high priest, with the cooperation of Jerusalem's high council, the Sanhedrin. They were pretty law-based people, and they violated a lot of their own rules to um, get Jesus. They want him dead. So he was convicted by the highest court of Israel, and he was sentenced to death. And don't forget that the conviction was for blasphemy. That's important. Caiaphas and his comrades in injustice and in crime, if you will, were well on their way to eliminating Jesus once and for all. At least that's what they hoped. But all they needed, and it's a big thing, is uh, an official okay from the Roman governor, governor Pontius Pilate. So Rome reserved for itself the power of life and death in criminal situations. An execution was only legal if it was done by the Romans or had their authority behind it. So I want to review a little bit of the background first on Rome in Israel. Judea became a subject state of Rome in AD 6, and Herod the Great's Herod the Great ruled that land for Rome, but, but he was a, an autonomous king because he was great and he was very close friends with the people in Rome, the emperor. Um, but his son, Archelaus, proved to be just a terrible ruler, just a failed ruler. And Rome doesn't like incompetence in government, uh, especially among its puppet rulers there. So Josephus, a, a first century Jewish historian, wrote this. He said, now Archelaus, part of Archelaus as part of Judea was reduced to a province. And Caponius, one of the equestrian order among the Romans, was sent as procurator, having the power of life and death put into his hands by Caesar. So a procurator is sort of a Roman governor type situation. So it was up through the reign of the fifth procurator of Judea, a man named Pontius Pilate. He was the fifth governor and he began his term in A.D. 26. And so this event in Jesus' life is happening in A.D. 33. So Pilate's been there for a little while. Pilate's one of the most interesting characters in the New Testament. He gets a lot of space. And uh, enough is recorded about him and other sources, like Josephus, the Jewish historian, that we get a fairly complete view of the kind of man he was and his character. He seems just the sort of man that rises to prominence and position when great nations are already past their prime. I mean, he's kind of a classic official in that sense. Of course, as an empire, Rome was still fairly young, and it was strong, I mean, very strong. But what, but what made her great was already being eaten away. Um, the roots were dying. And she lost her Republican system of governance, and now it was a dictatorship. I mean, you can call it something noble like emperor, but it was a dictatorship. In fact, dictator is a word that comes from the Romans. And she was just beginning to uh, have the kind of government where she would have to put up with 
very powerful and sometimes totally insane emperors. So that's where that empire was going. Rome's greatness and its rise really owed a lot to Roman virtue. We've talked about Roman virtues before, but especially respect for law, self-control, self-governance, uh, strong families, things like that. They, they were foundational. And um, the emperors, especially when it started to move into emperor worship, which was very big in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, um, it severely weakened all of those foundations. And just the, imp- the emperor having so much power really corrupted the foundations of Roman virtue. Pilate represents the sort of man that rises in a government rooted in the arbitrary dictates of an emperor. There's not a law falls second to the emperor's will. And so certain kind of people rise in that. People that learn to navigate and compromise and um, not displease the powers that be rather than focused on legal systems and legal methods of doing things. One historian described Pontius Pilate this way. A thorough and complete type of the later Roman man of the world, stern but not relentless, shrewd and world-worn, prompt and practical, haughtily just, and yet, as the early writers correctly perceived, self-seeking and cowardly, able to perceive what was right, but without the moral strength to carry it out. And all of that we see in the story of Jesus' trials. If you ask me to characterize Pilate, I think I would use one particular phrase. Up to a point. Up to a point. Only up to a point would he serve justice. Only up to a point would he have courage. Only up to a point would he display the character of the great men of Roman history. He believed in those things, but the world had changed and he he only believed in them. He only practiced them up to a point. So this is the man who decided the fate of God's son. So Matthew chapter 7, uh, 27, I mean, uh, verse 1, Matthew 27, verse 1. says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. So Matthew only gives us a very partial view of these events. He gives us really important details, but this, um, today, just like last time, I, I want to use all the Gospels to give you the complete picture. So let's look at John chapter 18, okay? We're going to turn to John chapter 18. It's early in the morning when the uh, Roman phase of Jesus' trials begin. The chief priests bring Jesus out to Pilate. But in order to remain ceremonially clean for Passover, they will not enter Pilate's building, the residence, or the even the place where he would ordinarily meet with people. Because it's Gentile. It's a Gentile roof, and they're not going to go under a Gentile roof. Uh, they want to remain ritually clean. So Pilate has to come out to see them. I mean, he's the governor, but he does it. Uh, he condescends to them because he knows the game you have to play if you're going to rule in Judea for Rome, and you've got to respect their religious customs as silly as they are, even if they're kind of belittling, which this one is to a, a pagan Roman. But um, these are important men, the chief priests, the elders, top people in Israel, so he needs their cooperation to govern well, so he goes out to meet them based on their prejudices. 
In John 18, uh, 28, it says, they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate's asking the right questions. Okay, what's the charge? What's the accusation? And they give a very odd, non-specific answer. If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So what's going on? Well, Pilate's asking a specific question. That is, he wants to see if he should give Jesus a hearing at all, if this is even something he thinks falls under his authority, his area of uh, Roman interest. So they they might have been hoping he would just sign off on an execution. I'm sure Caiaphas knew that execution according to Roman law might be a hard sell. So they're just calling Jesus an evildoer. He might think, oh, he's a killer, he's whatever, he's, uh, and yeah, I'll sign off on that. They might have been hoping for that to happen. But Pilate, uh, being a, a Roman and a governor, uh, desires to give Jesus a full and fair hearing. Roman justice. So that's what I mean. He believes in Roman justice, so he's practicing that. Their, their vague answer, I think, makes him suspect that this might be a religious matter. So in verse 31, um, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. So he has a strong sense that this is not something Rome would be interested in. And I think he gets that from the way they answered his question about what the charge was. So they acknowledge his authority. The Jews said in verse 31, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Okay, so now it's out. They want a death penalty from the governor. So at this point, they start adding specifics to the charges. Only they don't mention what they actually convicted Jesus of, which is blasphemy. They don't even bring that up. Instead, they, they tailor their accusations or charges, if you will, to interest Pilate as a Roman governor. And it's most clearly expressed in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, where they say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That would spark Roman interest. They don't actually say they convicted Jesus of that. They say we found this. So they're kind of using their language carefully there. So what do they say? He's been misleading the nation. He forbids paying taxes to Caesar. And he says he is a king. He's the Christ. So these new charges um, make it a case that Pilate can't ignore because they're serious. And they do involve Roman authority. And um, that this is like rebellion that they're accusing Jesus of, rebellion against Rome. Did Jesus refuse to pay taxes to Caesar? No, he did exactly the opposite. That was a lie. Did he claim to be a king? Well, yeah, he did, in a sense. Although, in John chapter 6, when they wanted to make him king, a big crowd of uh, the Jewish people, he turned them down. He left. So, now with these um, charges in mind, we can go back to John chapter 18 again. And there, in verse 33, it says, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus. So he calls Jesus to come with him. And said to him, 
are you the king of the Jews? So he's taking their claim, their accusation, and he's asking them if he's the king of the Jews. So he's taking him inside. This is a private audience. And no doubt he has heard of Jesus. Everybody had heard of Jesus that lived in Israel, and anybody in authority would certainly have heard about the massive crowds following him and the claims about him and all of that. He's, he's very direct. Are you the king of the Jews? And only John gives us this really fascinating exchange that follows, beginning in verse 34 of John 18. Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? So Jesus answers with a question. Why does Jesus ask this? Well, I think he wants Pilate to clarify his question. Are you asking me from your own perspective, that of a Roman concerned about a rival for Caesar's throne, or are you asking me from a spiritual perspective whether I am the promised king of Israel whose kingdom is in heaven and will come from there? So is it a Roman question or is it a Bible question? I think that's why Jesus is asking that. And Pilate says in verse 35, he says, am I a Jew? I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? What have you done? It's a good question. And Jesus gives Pilate a very clear unambiguous answer. My kingdom is not of this world. So he is acknowledging his kingship, but he's saying very clearly, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would be not, I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So in effect, he says, yes, I am a king, I, but not an earthly king. If I was, there'd be a fight going on right now. But that's not the case. Therefore, Pilate said to him, verse 37, so you are a king. And Jesus said, you say correctly that I am a king. So he's confirming that. For this I have been born, and for this I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So, Caesar has claims on men's bodies. Jesus is making claims on men's souls. He's the king of truth. So one writer said it like this, the, the strength of Caesar's kingdom was in citadels, armies, navies, towering Alps, the all-encompassing seas. The strength of Christ was and is in sentiments, principles, ideas, and the saving power of the divine word. One day Christ will rule the earth, but that was no threat to Caesar in the first century. Christ first came to conquer the hearts of men, to call forth faith, to establish a kingdom of love for God and for one another, um, to represent God's interest in the world in a wonderful way, to share the saving news, the good news that captivity to sin can be ended and God is ready to forgive and reconcile people to himself. So Jesus' object is not political at all. So he didn't blow it. He didn't fail to grasp the throne. He didn't want it. That wasn't what he was after at all. He came to bear witness to the truth, he says, that in him God was reconciling men to himself. He brought light and grace and love to mankind. That man, the lost sinner, could become man, the redeemed sinner, a, a true child of God. That's the great truth that Jesus came to take upon himself the burden of our sins 
and save us from ourselves. Well, Pilate had no interest in truth. Uh, what is truth? That's his answer. What is truth? And he doesn't stay to find out. Uh, he walks off. So he isn't asking a philosophical question of Jesus when he says, what is truth? He's given up on that. Pretty typical of a Roman in the first century, a patrician Roman. Uh, they weren't very philosophical at that time. It's a very cynical statement. And uh, he says it, and he just walks out, verse 38 says. So Pilate was typical of the Roman elite of his age. There were too many religions, too many philosophies. Life was an uncertainty, at best, ruled by pragmatic considerations. That's really how they viewed the world. It's a worldview that's not that different from the modern world in very important ways. The, 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 the historical dynamics are kind of similar as well. Rome was immensely powerful, like we are, but in decline, like we are. The decay was in her soul, not in her might, uh, in family life, in integrity. And that decay was clearly visible, um, just as it is today. They called it bread and circuses. We call it prosperity and entertainment and things like that, which are the same things. Um, Pilate was a man of his time, and our national leaders are, are men of their time, our time. And they're not that different. The times and the men are not that different. Great statesmen, you don't see them in the world anymore. They are gone from our time. They're, they were gone from the Roman imperial age as well. The great statesmen of Rome were not around anymore. So a really interesting question about this exchange between Pilate and Jesus might be, how did Pilate view Jesus? What was he thinking about him? And I think at this point, he saw him as kind of a harmless religious enthusiast, you know, a, a fanatic philosopher with a compelling presence. But plainly, a man Caesar really didn't have any reason to fear. Pilate did not buy the accusation that Jesus was a threat to Caesar Caesar's enemies would be political creatures, and clearly Jesus is a religious kook, you know, to Pilate, right? Um, they were worried about revolutionaries, zealots, uh, you know, armed people that were trying to kick Rome out of Israel, patriots, barbarian armies. Those are the things the Romans are worried about, men like that. Enemies of the empire, and Jesus was not an enemy of the empire. He's just a philosopher. So Pilate doesn't see any threat from the king of truth. And so he goes back outside, and both John 8.38 and Luke 23.4 tell us his exact words. He went out and he said, I find no guilt in this man. There's no guilt here regarding anything I'm concerned about. So I'm not sure Pilate was ready for the explosion that followed, but um, they don't go, oh, okay, we'll, we'll just take care of it ourselves or do something else. Uh, the priests get vicious and hurling accusations at Jesus, accusation after accusation. They're just really disturbed. Now, these are very powerful people. And like I said, Pilate has a political interest in staying on their good side. So he's not just going to kick them out. And uh, he's going to work with the situation. He's going to try to find a way out of the situation. So but now Matthew 27, verse 12, says, While he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. And Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. He certainly could have. I didn't ever say you couldn't pay taxes to Caesar. But Jesus said nothing. 
And it says, so the governor was quite amazed. Now he's kind of curious because Jesus is not acting at all normal. I mean, who has that kind of vitriol being thrown at him and doesn't say something? He doesn't deny any of it and he doesn't affirm any of it. He's just completely silent. Mark tells us that they accused Jesus harshly. That was his word he added to that description there. Luke tells us they insisted that he was stirring up the people. That would be of Roman interest. So Pilate's baffled. Jesus isn't defending himself. It's almost as if he's giving himself over to be condemned, which of course is exactly what he's doing. Most men would at least plead their case, something, you know. So now Luke tells us how Pilate thought he found a way out. So this is in Luke chapter 23. They accused Jesus with these words, Luke 23, 5. They kept insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Uh-oh, they made a mistake. They mentioned Galilee, which they thought would have maybe some meaning for Pilate, because the Galileans were... Well, Galilee was kind of a hotbed of anti-Roman sentiments. In fact, one generation later, when Israel did rebel against Rome, and there was a huge war that lasted several years against Rome from um, Israel trying to win their independence, uh, Jerusalem was defended at the very last by Galileans on the walls of Jerusalem. They were the most uh, vociferous enemies of Rome from there. And that sentiment had already been there. These are a little bit less cultured people, um, a little more ferocious. Uh, uh, they didn't like Judeans. Judeans didn't like them. Judeans were compromisers. Uh, they were a little bit more rustic and um, it's kind of red state, blue state stuff. And um, the Galileans were more red state kind of people. So the priests would have known as well that Pilate had already had a bad encounter with the Galileans. And we don't know the full story, except Jesus refers to it in Luke chapter 13, verse 1, where he just mentions the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. So something happened where there was a conflict with Rome and the Romans slammed them down. And it must have been in the temple or the temple area because they, they were sacrifices were around and the animal blood was mixed with their blood. And Jesus just is mentioning it because everybody would have known that story, but we don't know the details of it. So, but anyway, those were Galileans. Again, they're kind of troublemaker types, you know? So um, the chief priests may have been emphasizing Galilee on purpose to get Pilate interested, but they almost lose their chance to kill Jesus by doing that because that gives the word Galilee gives Pilate an idea, a wonderful idea to him. Galilee. He is from Galilee. They said he started in Galilee. That's outside my jurisdiction. That's somebody else's domain. I don't have to worry about Galileans. So it just so happened also that Herod, the ruler of Galilee, was in town for Passover. So Luke 23, verse 6, when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Oh, was he a, is he a Galilean? And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at the time. So only Luke tells us this part of the trials of Jesus. It's because it is kind of a sideshow. It's really not critical, but it's very interesting. So Luke Luke personally knew Joanna, 
who was the wife of Chuza, who was Herod's steward. So the guy that was in charge of all of King Herod's stuff, Luke knew his wife. She was a believer. So um, either she or her husband may have been firsthand witnesses of this part of Jesus' Roman trials. In this case, a Roman trial under a non-Roman king, but a king that was put in place by Rome. So Herod Antipas. What a character. This isn't Herod the Great. This is Herod the low-key knockoff. Uh, he inherited one-third of Herod the Great's domains, Galilee and Perea, which is on the other side of the Jordan from there. And his brothers got the rest. It was all divided up. So Herod Antipas was not a great figure. He was um, a typical despotic Eastern potentate, uh, superstitious, lascivious, living for himself, gratifying his own passions. He had no vision. He had no leadership for his people. But he did serve Rome by keeping Galilee pacified. So and that's what they wanted. So um, we know him best as the murderer of John the Baptist. He was the kind of goofball that would give up half of his kingdom to watch a girl dance. That's, that's the level of quality of Herod Antipas. He's a real fool. And at one point, he thought, he thought Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. He's, oh, he was concerned about that because he's the man that killed John the Baptist. But they had never met. He'd never met Jesus before. And, it, and he'd always wanted to. So Herod's approach to Jesus is very different from Pilate. The governor of Judea, Pilate, was a pragmatic administrator of justice. Herod views Jesus as a party favor, as a source of entertainment, a source of amusement. Luke chapter 3, 23, verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him, and he was hoping to see some sign performed by him. See, Pontius Pilate probably heard about all that stuff, and he doesn't go, oh, let me see a miracle, Jesus. But Herod's the kind of character that that's all he cared about. So um, he's having this conversation with Jesus, I guess, but Luke doesn't even mention any, any of the questions he asked him. It's not worth it. It's not worth reporting because Herod's an idiot. So, but he does say in verse 9, he questioned him at some length, and what was Jesus' answer? Nothing. Didn't answer anything. Total silence. Jesus had enough respect for Pilate, not to answer the charges, but at least have a conversation with him. He did, have, he did answer some of his questions. But Herod? No way. No way. Probably Jesus had Proverbs 23, 9 in his head. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool. For he will despise the wisdom of your words. Some people you don't bother with, right? And Herod's one of those people. Uh, Pilate he could talk to, maybe even win. Not, not to free him, but, you know, have him seek him later. But Herod is a complete fool. So the priests and the scribes followed Jesus to Herod, shouting their accusations, Luke 23.10 tells us. But Jesus doesn't say a single word. Not a single word. So Herod and his men, just they try to have fun with Jesus without his cooperation. So you know how people are like that, the, these uh, low-life people. They mock you, push you around, uh, get in your face, make trouble for you. So it says, um, Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And Luke adds this odd bit of information in verse 12. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with, with each other that very day. 
for before they had been enemies with each other. That's pretty interesting. And I don't even know why he mentions it, except Luke has an inside source about Herod and his relationship. So apparently Pilate trying to get out of a jam by sending Jesus to Herod, Herod may have interpreted as a great honor. Wow, he he honored me by sending he, me this most famous man, you know, this uh, guy I've always wanted to see, this prestigious prisoner, you know. So the bad feelings between them softened into friendship, apparently. So, you know, opposition to God can be a source of great affection amongst people. Don't forget that. So Jesus goes back to Pilate, uh, you know, still battered and bruised from earlier beatings, but but now he's wearing a very fine robe, and Pilate has decided to let Jesus go. And he tells the chief priest that plainly. So Luke 23, verse 13, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, now this is a very reasonable thing for Pilate to tell them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you have made against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. So I examined him according to the charges you brought Absolutely nothing sticks. And Herod examined him too and sent him back. So he doesn't have anything that sticks. So there's no capital offense that Jesus can possibly be guilty of. So Pilate says, I will punish him and I will let him go. And and punishing him, that's the start of the injustice from Pilate's side going on here. The, the glory of Roman justice is starting to lose its shine with that because he didn't do anything that beat up for either. But it's a way of Pilate politically satisfying the chief priests, he thinks. So he offers to punish Jesus, have him beaten, probably not that severely at this point, but just to please the Jews, but they won't have it. They will not have it. So he decides to use an, another idea of releasing a prisoner. Now that's a good plan because that was done frequently at major festivals and Passover is a major festival. So Matthew gives us the most information about this. So you can go back to Matthew chapter 27, verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? or Jesus, who is called Christ. For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife, Pilate's wife, sent him a message. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas, Barabbas. A couple things to notice here. These crowds have gathered now. So it's mid-morning by now, and people are out. And no doubt there's a lot of buzz about the arrest of Jesus and the things that were going on. That doesn't stay secret for very long. But it's also likely that the priests and the elders organized this crowd to come and shout the way they wanted them to. It's not just a general crowd of people. Oh, just let's go see the trial today. Um, it's their people 
and they want them to pressure Pilate. So they happen to be there, so Pilate calls out all this and uh, offers them a choice, and they choose Barabbas. And, and, and it, the text actually says that Pilate can see that the motivation against Jesus was envy on the part of the priest, not any concern for real justice. He can see that. So he knows this is not right. And then there's the message from his wife. And he was sit, sitting on the judgment seat, his official thing when that message came to him. So piece of paper, a servant or whatever, have nothing to do with that righteous man. I had a horrible dream about him last night. Well, that's interesting. And I think that little note added to the stress that Pilate was probably feeling at this time. So, and remember, they, she had this dream before Jesus came to Pilate. So there's something kind of mysterious going on here, something sort of supernatural. And Pilate wants to free Jesus. And John tells us he tried to satisfy their, their hatred against Jesus by having him scourged. So that's his next um, way to solve the problem. So releasing him wasn't going to work. Punishing him wasn't going to work. Having a prisoner come out wasn't going to work. So now it's going to the scourging step, which is way more severe punishment than anything else that could possibly have happened. So back in John's gospel, um, he is hoping this is going to be enough. So John 19, verse 1, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. So this is the scourging that we're familiar with. That if we know the story of Jesus that we usually think about. So far, Jesus has been punched, slapped, spit on, uh, humiliated, um, all kinds of things. But survivable. And we don't have the details of how they scourged Jesus in the text here. Uh, but we do know some things about Roman scourging. Um, there are images, pictures, reliefs carved of, of the scourges that were used, the uh, the weapon, and um, there's written accounts of, of that. We do know that in the Eastern Empire, a scourge might be, because we know that there were such there, uh, it would be like a whip, but with a short whip with several thongs, leather thongs. And in the East, we know that they were embedded with ostragalus bones from sheep. They're these little square bones, and they were put along the thong, so there'd be several all the way along there. And people use those for all kinds of things because they were nice little cubes. They used them for playing dice and things like that. But for this, they used them to brutalize prisoners. So it's not just a whip. It's a whip with these bones um, sewn into it so that they would tear you up, bruise you, and rip your flesh. They also may have put lead weights in the, the scourge thongs and also, possibly metal pieces. They did that in, at times as well. So, but uh, tip, the, what we know they used in the Eastern Empire were these sheep bones, these little cubic bones to add a lot of strength to this. We also know that scourging was so bad, it was such a horrible, brutal punishment, that if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be scourged. So it's just like being crucified. If you were a Roman, you couldn't be crucified. Well, if you were a Roman, you couldn't be scourged either. It was that bad. So... Um, it was a great privilege of Roman citizenship that no matter what crime you did, they would not scourge you. So they do scourge him. These soldiers who already are 
hostile because of the sword play in the garden the night before, these soldiers make it worse than usual by making a crown of thorns specifically to mock Jesus as a king and to drive these thorns into his head, into his scalp, and, and they mock him. King of the Jews, king of the Jews. And Pilate thinks this should be more than enough to appease the hatred that these people have for Jesus. But his hopes are dashed. Um, why, why are they dashed? Because in God's sovereignty, Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and he has to die on Passover. He's going to die. So nothing's going to soften them. John chapter 19, verse 4. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate said to them, He's done now. Take them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. He says that multiple times. But it doesn't do any good. So here's a Roman governor flogging, scourging a Jewish prophet, you know, from his point of view, calling their attention to his mangled body, his laid open flesh, the crown of thorns on his head, blood streaming down his face, and they have no pity at all for him. They cry out for crucifixion. So he says, do it yourselves. Of course, they can't without his okay, so he does have to okay it. But verse 7, it says, the Jew says, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die. That's why they're saying that, because they need his authority for that. Because he made himself out to be, here's another moment that grabs Pilate's attention, I'm sure. He made him out, himself out to be the son of God. Well, they ha he hadn't heard that before. That's a new one. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of an injustice against the Son of God, or a Son of God as he may have seen it as a pagan. So they'd slipped again here a little bit. They told the truth about why they were killing Jesus and wanted him dead is because he said he was the Son of God. So it wasn't rebellion against Caesar at all. It was the claim to be the son of God. And he's afraid. This is new information. So he's thinking, well, who is this guy? A son of God? I mean, pagans had all kinds of stories about gods cohabitating with humans and, you know, producing offspring. And they were usually some kind of super special people like Hercules was one of those. And, and Achilles and the Greek legends was one of those, you know, the offspring of a, of a, a god and a human. It could be male god, female human, or a female goddess and a male human. That, there's a lot of stories about that. Now, by the first century, a Roman aristocrat would have thought of those things as legendary. But they were the stories of their people. And everybody had read, uh, you know, the Odyssey and uh, all of that. So they knew about all those stories. But there's something about Jesus, obviously, his character, his self-control, his demeanor, his silence, uh, his lack of fear, uh, his confidence. There is something special about him. So when they call him the Son of God and... Pilate's already had these really interesting interactions with him, and Jesus has talked about heaven being the source of his kingdom, right? So I think he's wondering if 
that could possibly be true. And then there's the wife's dream. People in the ancient world put a lot of stock in dreams. And so his wife was having a dream before Jesus ever showed up with him, saying to not do anything to him, not to hurt him. So there's a lot going on here. Maybe Jesus is supernatural. So verse 9, he takes Jesus back inside. He entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you? And I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. That's not a comforting answer. I mean, Jesus is really strongly hinting that he is special. He is unique. And suddenly this worldly wise, cynical, practical man of Rome, the personal representative of Caesar, the master of the world, is thrust into events that are starting to sound genuinely otherworldly. He's a practical man. The Romans were practical people. But this is starting to get weird. Jesus is mysterious. He's discomforting. And now he's reminding Pilate that Pilate is accountable to heaven. Not just Caesar, but heaven. Condemning Jesus would be a sin against God. And everything in Pilate's upbringing and education and heritage demanded that he do justice. That's what the Romans believed in. At least that's what they said they believed in. In fact, they had a saying, let justice be done though the heavens fail. It's more important to be just and that the world survive. So he tries one more time to free Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, this, here's the sticker, this is the one that, that does it. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Now those words cut deep. Tiberius Caesar was paranoid about disloyalty. Pilate knew that. In fact, during Tiberius's reign, 52 men were accused of conspiring against Caesar, and they were all executed. That's a lot. And people that were in subject states, subject countries to the Roman Empire, they had to write to go to the emperor and complain about people that the emperor had put in authority over them. They had that right. So they could have gone to Rome as a delegation and said, Pontius Pilate, let go a guy that was trying to overthrow your kingdom who's starting a rebellion against you. They could easily have done that. And Pilate knows that. In fact, years later, Pilate actually lost his position as a governor for ju from just such a delegation. So you can make those complaints, and they stick sometimes. The, the emperor will say, okay, all right, we'll get you a new governor. Or, or if he thought he was a treasonous governor, he... It wouldn't be outside of Tiberius's um, methods to kill him, to have Pilate put to death. So that's a serious charge uh, that they're making, accusation, a roundabout way of uh, 
putting pressure on him here. So think about it. It's a charge of treason against him for protecting a man who himself proclaimed to be a king. Yeah, Pilate's thinking Tiberius just might take it that way, you know. So, verse 13, John 19. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement. But in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Archaeologists have actually found this pavement. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So, he handed him over to them to be crucified. Let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Pilate believed in that, but only up to a point. As politic politicians so often do, he just took the easy, easy way. He did try to stand up, but in the end, when he was threatened, he took the easy way out. He acted cowardly. He was weak. He was full of the frailty that haunts each of us. How often are we tempted, you know, I will serve the Lord up to a point. And we all have different points. We all have different things that will come against us and challenge us to disobey God or to be unfaithful, be unfaithful to justice or to morality. We all have those points. And Satan always tries to get us to push beyond them. And Pilate fell here. I will be a man of integrity up to a point. Pilate did the right thing for a long time that morning. Until he thought the cost, the risk, was too high. And then he gave up. He gave up the Son of God. He gave up the Son of God to death. So God spare us from having a heart like his to love Christ but only to a point Pilate tries to wash away his guilt Matthew 27 verse 24 when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing but rather that a riot was starting that sounds familiar he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying I am innocent of this man's blood see to that yourselves so he's saying, I'm not responsible. I am not responsible. But he was responsible. He washed his hands when he should have used them, figuratively speaking, used them to set an innocent man free. We can't just shut off responsibility because we say we're innocent when we have a responsibility. I couldn't help it. I had to. I had no choice. That's got to be what he told his wife that night. I had no choice. Yes, he did. He could have taken the risk. Where's his manhood, you know? The, the moral life has to be built on character. The Christian life has to be built on character. And character comes from the ability to say no to yourself, to say no compromise. Pontius Pilate entered history with a cursed name. And frankly, there's not a lot of records of him. But we know this about him. He was a compromiser. Forever 
a model of cowardice, political cowardice. A political man giving way to great injustice. May God give us grace to be, for Jesus' sake, everything that he deserves us to be. May we be that way. We should seek that diligently. Let's pray. Lord, God, compromise is built into our fallen state. We have a hard time being what you want us to be, even, even being what we want us to be. But by your grace and the new birth and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can grow into men and women who can be lights for your wonderful son. He came to pay for our sins and reconcile us to you, O God, and grant us the humility to seek him above all things and to honor him with our choices right to the end, no matter the cost. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been paying attention, we have skipped over some portions of Matthew's gospel because I really wanted to give you a very comprehensive look at the trials of Jesus, the Jewish trials and now the Roman trials. So we skipped over a few places. So we're going to go back and we're going to go back and look at two men, two of the 12 disciples of Jesus. They had that in common. Both men were given great responsibility by Jesus. Both failed. One is named Peter, and the other is named Judas. Similar in some ways, very different in others. So we're going to explore how the story ends up with them next time. Okay, we'll see you then.